Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, featuring 2nd Edition AD&D Players and DMs Option Books. In this series, we are taking a close look at these special books that are often considered D&D 2.5. On the fourth day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me Combat and Tactics Part 1. All right, so Sam, start us off. What is this book? Well, actually, this was, you know, we started this 12 Days of Christmas series with Skills and Powers, but technically, Combat and Tactics was released a month prior. So it was actually the first player's option book released. And this book has, oh, geez, what is it? Uh, seven chapters, eight, eight, nine chapters. I think they all have nine chapters, right? It has nine chapters of combat options. And it is glorious and horrific at the same time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that seems a fair statement. Um, so, so my thesis for this book, right, which I'll go ahead and state up front, and we'll see how right I am about this. My thesis for this book is that this is the um, prototype for third edition combat. Totally, totally disagree. Oh, you disagree? No, no, I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> no, I'm t- <laughs> All right. no, how how could anybody disagree with oh, that? Oh, I was going to say, bring it on, man. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, I think that this is to uh, third edition combat very much as third edition is to fifth edition. Um, third edition uh, is much more nitpicky than fifth edition about a lot of things. Uh, such as the things that provoke opportunity opportunity attacks and uh, exactly how flanking and so on works and, and uh, the the whole diagonal movement costs five then ten then five then ten uh, and a lot of those kinds of uh, edges were deliberately sanded off in the span of fourth edition and fifth edition design. Mm-hmm. Well, for let's give a specific example of that. Uh, if you happen to have this book on page eight, there is an image. Uh, you know, the, the the first chapter starts talking about battle mats and you know how to use miniatures and and it provides a diagram that the first diagram it provides shows some uh, miniatures on a, a map with one inch squares. And it labels all of the spaces around each miniature. They're either a front-facing space, a rear-facing space, or a flanking space. And what's what strikes me about this image is that one of the miniatures is directly centered in a square. And the other miniature is shifted by 45 degrees. So the mini is not actually... I mean, well, so the base of the mini is shifted 45 degrees. Right. The miniature is still technically within the square, but uh, they're illustrating the difference between front-facing, which are three of the squares that this particular miniature is, is at, versus rear-facing versus flanking. And it is so granular, right? It's it's not that, oh, well, here's the miniature, and if you're in a square around them, you're just in a square around them, you're within melee range. No, no, no. You could be facing the front of them, or you could be facing the back of them, or you and an ally could be flanking them, but only from direct opposite sides. And it matters which way the miniature is facing 
to figure out which is the direct opposite sides. Yep. Well, and just to hammer home that point, the page facing that one has diagram two, facing of larger creatures. This this is the this is the uh, uh, image I lovingly refer to as fee fi fo fum because yeah. <laughs> next to the giant it says fee 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 it's not really fee it's fl but it looks like fee <laughs> yeah uh, and you notice that uh, diagram two doesn't include any figures that are not orthogonal to the grid right right because they can't fit the mini. In, in that, in a way that makes any sense, which is uh-huh. really problem one right? with exactly. the whole approach. Um, it doesn't track well at all for uh, minis larger than one square in base. Um, but yeah, like this is uh, setting out a lot of the things that um, I think – a lot of the stuff that's here was true in second edition, and I'm just not digging through the DMG to prove it. Um, a, a lot of the stuff about large, huge, gargantuan creatures, so on, uh, that's very familiar. Um, and uh, so I have a secondary thesis, uh, which is that we're going to see some things that uh, are true in combat and tactics and in 5th edition, but uh, no game in between those. And I have no idea why that's true unless it's either – it sort of has to be either independent invention or someone did some deep research and said, hey, that was a neat idea. Let's circle back to that, but implement it a little bit differently. So, for example, there are no colossal creatures in this book. Uh, the – the size scaling stops at gargantuan. Uh, and that is unstatedly large. Uh, uh, much like you see in 5th in edition, um, which doesn't have colossals for reasons. But it was also something I had to uh, design my way out of when I was writing the Kaiju Codex for right publishing. Uh, because... It's right there in the name. I, I, I need kaiju. They have to be the biggest thing going. And I need to be able to describe how enormous they are so they have a special trait that is about being colossal. Anyway, I digress. Um, so from the <laughs> from the sort of clumsiness of facing rules, things rapidly get much, much worse. Because... The game wants you to uh, track both melee combat scale and missile scale um, at approximately the same time and uh, rearrange your minis when creatures at missile scale close to melee scale. Um, And so there's a whole diagram about combined scale that I have no idea what it means. It is not instructive in any way. Um, <laughs> and I mean, there's a section on how to switch scale to to zoom in uh, from uh, missile scale combat to melee scale combat, and we just don't think about things that way really at all anymore. Um, for the most part, uh, we have rescaled the ranges of uh, missile weapons to be sort of meaningful um, in in melee combat and not just 
if I can see them, I can hit them. Uh, I mean, the longbow is a bit of an exception because uh, 600 feet is no joke, but uh, what you have to understand is that uh, distances in, uh, especially first edition, but also second edition, uh, get very tangled up around how, around the unit that's even attached, whether it's uh, a single uh, uh, hash mark for feet, two hash marks for inches, which means feet, uh, uh, feet or yards. And in this book, they actually went to a movement rate by character race. And for example, humans are 12, elves and half-elves are 12, dwarves are 6. But that's 12 squares on a battle mat, which is supposed to be 5 feet. So that's 60 feet right. and, and that's only sensible. for the human and 30 feet for the dwarf. Right, and that's only sensible if you understand that we're talking about these one-minute rounds uh, until, until we're not, and we'll get to that because right. it's a yes, book full of exactly. options that you really have to spend a lot of work resolving against each other. Um, well, so let me, and let me actually say something about that. What's funny is, you know, we're, we, we sort of started off right away kind of dogging on this a little bit, but the thing is when you read the book, it flows very well. It flows from one topic right into another. It, it's describing how this system can all work and how it all fits together. And you can assemble a system in your game where you have a difference between melee weapons and long range weapons that's still meaningful, even if you use a battle mat. And like, like it, it reads so nicely. Like it, it reads as a logical flow of here's how this system works. But when you put it on the table. Right. I'm going to argue that the prose promises far more than it delivers. Well, yeah, I, and that's why that's why I said read I said when you read it. When you read it, it it makes logical sense and you could see where they why they went from one paragraph to another, you know, and and what the transition from one sort of mini topic to the next mini topic and, you know, threatening squares and being grappled and attacks of opportunity and, you know, all of those things they they fit very nicely. It's very well organized in terms of topic flow. But Man, when you sit down at the table and you try to implement these things, it really doesn't flow as well anymore. I mean, the very next thing is the combat round uh, that that offers a 10 to 15 second combat round. So you have uh, roughly five rounds in a minute rather than one round in a minute, which is the stated default for, for second edition. Um, and and the fact of the matter is, I sometimes have some logical issues with the brevity of a six-second combat round, and in some ways, a 10 to 15-second combat round would be more to my taste. Uh, I'd have to think about rescaling spells and such to, to match that, but it's not important right now. Uh, the point is, uh, this asserts that you can just ignore that change completely um, as you shift between uh, normal time and combat time. And that is sort of ill-considered to me because uh, it really just means that things 
happen faster in combat. Spells run out faster, and um, people move slower, and and all of these things. Oh, no, so people move faster because it's in less time, and it's just very what, um, and if it were not asserting a kind of realism that would matter to me less if it were sort of embracing its cinematic nature i would be more okay with this but it is trying to assert itself as a um, sort of gritty immediate and real combat system and that's just it's not what's in evidence folks i'm sorry i mean it talks about the fact that um you now uh, fall faster, right? Uh, under the effects of Featherfall, because right. you fall the distance of Featherfall in 10 to 15 seconds rather than 60 seconds. It, so so they know that it makes no sense, and they just tell you to let it go, but it, I don't think it meshes with the rest of the text. Well, what's funny is it says uh, this is an abstract system, so applying physics properties to every situation may reveal lots of facts, but it won't make for a better game. But in the middle of that sentence that I just read, they have a parenthetical section that does exactly what you just said. It it does the math regarding Featherfall and explains how you will now plummet to the ground 6.8 miles per hour versus 1.4 miles per hour. But I see why they did that to illustrate their point, except – you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, this is going to be the most realistic and we're going to do all these things to make this move towards realism or simulation. But then, by the way, you kind of have to forget the rules of physics too. Right. Like you don't you don't get to do both of those. I mean, well, I guess you do, but it kind of kills your credibility a little bit, right? And, and you know, it's exactly what we're going to see in in third edition, you know, as I continue to put forth this thesis. Um, but this whole idea of you know, precise facing matters and you need to figure out which squares are flanking as opposed to rear so you can get you know one point of uh, attack bonus rather than two and so on. I mean, that is all running in the opposite direction of sort of pixel bitching. And yeah, just... Um, and so we sort of roll right into... Um, What's it, it eventually gets around to saying this is about uh, attacks for opportunity, um, but it mm-hmm. starts by explaining the clear state, which is to say, no one is currently threatening me, and then the threatened state, and options about ignoring the threatened state so that you can do other stuff, um, and the things that provoke opportunity attacks, attempting missile combat, moving away from the threatened creature. Uh, turning so that the threatening creature is now in a rear square. Well, that one's rough. Uh, attempting an unarmed, unarmed attack against any foe except an unarmed human-like creature. Well, that's why you don't have monks in second edition, guys. That right there. Um, and don't get me wrong, you do sort of have monks. Uh, the game just hides them, and they're definitely not... Uh, sort of in communication with this rule book in any sense. And I say that knowing that we're going to get around to the chapter on unarmed combat in this book. Uh, 
<laughs> but <laughs> and it's going to be. But those, that's that is that is still your your sentence is still correct. That is largely un unmarried or unconnected in any way right. to like, <laughs> to the monk. Or it was yeah. something we said with skills and powers, right? That the separate chapters didn't feel like they were talking to each other or talking about the same thing, and it got very confusing. And it's going to get confusing here. And there are places where this book seems like it knows what's coming in skills and powers and places where it, it clearly doesn't. Um, but we'll sort of see that as we go. Well, there's places in this book where it, where it seems like it knows what's coming in the very next chapter and then places where it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Forget book um, to book, just look page to page. Yeah. Um, and so, um, there's, there's rules on threatening, um, you know, the squares that you threaten, the squares that you don't, because, of course, it's about facing again. Then uh, attacks for opportunity. Well, so there's there's actually sort of combat expertise as a default state in uh, in this book, except that it's not about your dexterity uh, bonus. It is about your, um, about your number of levels or hit dice. Warriors and monsters can make three attacks for opportunity plus one per five levels or hit dice. All of the characters can make one attack for opportunity plus one per five levels. 30 kobolds trying to swarm past a fighter in a narrow passage will take losses, but some will still get through. Well, good lord, is that a lot of rolls. Good lord. I think we can we can all be grateful that you now get one reaction. And... Uh, the cavalier gets their weird special case thing, but but here's another one of those cases where, you know, they they set up a rule so that it it can act as a replacement for physics rules, um, but then it doesn't actually make sense in the narrative. That's not how it would work, you know. So it's, you know, once again, you can't have it both ways. You, you don't get to say, well, we're going to make this rule because we want it to be really uh, realistic and we want to give the, the fighter a little bump and let him, you know, or her, you know, make, make all of these attacks. Uh, but no one else can do that. And it still works out because <laughs> because we we said, <laughs> right? Well, and, and I think they were running into a real sense that the second edition fighter is – not that sexy. Um, not when you look at the just ridiculousness that was coming into print for wizards uh, and to a lesser extent priests, just book after book after book. Um, I mean, pages for the mages, guys. Just <laughs> goodness. Goodness. Um like every every new Forgotten Realms book would have uh, at least a handful of new weird niche spells that, if used correctly, just totally broke the game. Um, so so right. Um, Attacks for opportunity. Uh, I think there's a sense that this is where they this is the starting point, and then you get to uh, third edition. And well, probably you only make one, but okay, you could buy this one feat that is incidentally required for a lot of stuff, and you you really probably want if you have a good dex, so you get a bunch more opportunity attacks. Well, that's still really burdensome, 
seeing you know, three opportunity attacks in a round. I'm trying to I'm trying to remember what the what was the opportunity attack rule in first edition. Uh, there was one, but. Uh, a lot of people will say that there aren't attacks of opportunities in first edition because it's not called that. Um, but if you look in the DMG under you know special types of attacks, you find that there is a rule for uh, attacking those that are breaking off from a melee. It says at such time as any creature decides it can break off the engagement and flee the melee. To do so, however, it allows the opponent a free attack or attack routine. This attack is calculated as if it were a rear attack upon a stunned opponent. In other words, it's uh, easy, <laughs> easier. Uh, when, when this attack is completed, the retiring or fleeing party may move away at full movement rate, and unless the opponent pursues and is able to move at a higher rate of speed, the melee is ended and the situation becomes one of encounter avoidance. Um, but when you're attacking in first edition, uh, when you're attacking someone's rear and they are stunned, I mean, that's like, yep. you know, they might as well be unconscious. So anyway, so I just wanted to. So that's the that's just the basics of the rule right there. Um, there is no uh, idea about um, one person. Uh, there's no limit on the number of times you could do that. It doesn't say. Well, maybe I should check the uh, the flanking rules, but it it doesn't say. Uh, well, if you're surrounded by four people and they all break off, you cannot attack them all. You have to pick one. It it just says someone who flees melee can be attacked. So anyway, so moving on. <laughs> then, like you mentioned, we get into movement rates, and it's it's race linked, and that's that's fine. Like, that's it's your pace. It's just um, dwarves, gnomes, and halflings are half the speed of uh, humans and elves, and that may nominally reflect you know, leg length, but it is sure not fun. Well, see, once, okay, once again, right, the physics, okay, anyone who's a runner knows uh, if you're five foot five and you're running against someone who's six foot seven, your stride is much shorter than theirs. And so sure. you're at a disadvantage. But like you said, that's not fun. Right. right. Um, well, and in the, in the, let's say 10 or 15 second combat round, I don't know that it says, uh, sort of aggressively visible as this makes it. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, sure. But, well, except remember, it also expects you to be jumping back and forth between melee distance and range distance. Well, well sort of. Once they close to melee distance, you're pretty much in melee distance. Uh, I, I don't know that in a single combat it expects you to revert to missile distance very much, unless you're uh, trying to take down a runner. I don't know. I uh, it it's written at, that uh you know people can retreat and then turn to fire upon you and that now suddenly instead of being in melee you're now in ranged again well right? that's fair it it, it is written yeah. and so it shall be done <laughs> well that's how it's been in every edition right <laughs> accurate yes yes <laughs> um and and you know um then we have another page of stuff that no one ever asked for um, five grades of encumbrance. Five grades. There's none, light, moderate, heavy, and severe. Um, and, it, you know, if you are severely encumbered, 
you are sort of staggering along comically uh, at a speed of one. Uh, but there's there's all these charts for uh, encumbrance categories by strength score, and then your your actual movement speed as compared to your base movement speed at each level of encumbrance. Then, so so that's this is another thing we're going to see later on. Uh, you get simplified encumbrance as a, an alternative. Um, so they know that it's complicated and excessive, and so armor has a uh, base encumbrance level, the typical encumbrance level of a human wearing that armor. Uh, and that's got everything in the world in common with uh, the way that uh, you know, some medium and I think all heavy armors uh, slow you down a little bit in third edition. That's that's just the concept there. Um because third edition, well, it was going to track the weight, but it recognized that it was not actually going to be a fun game at all if your armor was heavy enough to put you into an encumbrance category, because that meant you couldn't haul out the loot. I mean, come on. It's the thing that we're... Even me, as a not especially you know, dungeon-bashing, uh, loot-seeking type of player... Like that's miserable. Uh, if you don't have the strength to carry out, you know, pretty much the cool crap you find that you expect to be able to take with you, like that's no, don't do that. Um, so so I don't know. I'm going to say that it only flows so well because now we skipped opening the battle and surprise rules. Um, um, and here you have to remember that. Second edition has some very idiosyncratic rules for surprise uh, that have to do with, you know, this monster surprises on a roll of blah on blah die size. And then you also have monsters that are only surprised on a roll of blah on blah die size. These will not match up. They're completely disconnected from each other. They they are... they. And there's no explanation of how to resolve them against each other. They don't give you rules to resolve them against each other because they're not meant to be. <laughs> right. And on some level, the idea is that, well, those rules are, are mo- mostly show up in monster stat blocks and not in character stats. So like, you're wandering through, through the dungeon. And you run into the monster with the idiosyncratic rule. That's your lookout. It's not really going to happen in the reverse case, except that it totally does and can. And it gets much, much stranger once you get into uh, elf and halfling stealth abilities um, for, from their race that I think we may have talked about before. Um, so, so you have these surprise rules and it points out that normally a group is surprised in a roll of one, two, or three on a d10. That is useful rules. That's good to know. Um, could still maybe stand to be stated a little more, a little more bold face in the original DMG, but I digress. Yeah, that's 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 hidden. It's hidden in the middle of the third paragraph in the section. It's like, oh, well, you you probably won't read this far, but uh, just in case you want to know, you got to roll a d10. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
And you know, most of what's actually happening in in this section isn't a change, except that they've uh, turned the range right. into squares right. rather than um, units of five feet or whatever. Yeah. They're really working hard. They're working hard to sell the battle mat idea, right? They really are, and in fairness, it does smooth out play in a lot yeah. of cases, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and. It's another thing that points to this as a third ed prototype because third ed had less than no interest in continuing to make itself playable in a theater of the mind way. You could do it, but the game wasn't going right. to support it. It was explicitly expected uh, that you will use miniatures of some sort, whether it's dice or candies or whatever, and a five foot right. square grid map, right? Or a one inch per five foot right. square grid map. And the same is going to be true in uh, fourth edition, which will turn its terminology into squares. Uh, so this sort of uh, presages that right. too, and I think that's interesting. Yeah. Um, but then you get the, the five basic steps of every combat round. Well, this part is is bog standard for for second edition, where you um, sort of. First, the DM determines what the monsters are all going to do. Then the players determine what they're going to do. Then you roll initiative, and that can totally invalidate your action choices because thanks. Um, and then you resolve all those actions, and then you figure out end of round stuff. So, so let me let me say something about this actually because this this. Uh, this reminds me of the the premise of gold is XP. Okay. Um, in in the way of um, that was sort of the 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 old edition way to do things, the gold for XP thing, and it really informed the way that you play the game, and it it, it really affected uh, the outcome of different encounters and encounter avoidance and all that kind of stuff. This is this is the same. It really really affects how a combat flows. And what happens in a combat if you if you make if you do the second edition declaration if you make the the players declare right you make the, the you know the DM decides what the monsters are going to do and then you make the players declare their actions and then you roll initiative and you roll initiative for every round so yep. some rounds you're going first and some rounds you're not um, it's a it's a round to round item and since you've already declared if something that happened before your turn invalidates your action well sorry bud yep but the thing is that 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 has as much an effect on the way the game plays as gold for xp does and you know me i'm a i'm a real big proponent of gold for xp losing that changed the game and pushed us into the modern game and the modern game plays very different from the older editions and losing this sort of uh, task determination before the initiative or before you even know what's happening also changed the game. I'm not making a judgment. I'm not saying one's better than the other. I'm just saying it has an enormous effect on the game. And it's kind of interesting to me here. This is why I brought this up. It's kind of interesting to me here that here they are in the combat and tactics, like special optional rules area, and they kept the same damn action determination you know, declaration yeah. of what you're doing and then roll initiative. Like they kept that same, they, they didn't, I, I'm, I'm kind of surprised they didn't do as one of the very first options. Here's how you could change this. Yeah. Um, and, and I 
do sometimes wonder uh, what other people were doing at their tables. Um, I don't have the clearest memory at this point of us doing anything that wasn't by the book uh, in, in second edition, except that I I think there's a pretty good chance we didn't um, declare actions before the start of the round. It was just, when your turn comes up, figure out what you're doing. It's fine. Um, I, I I know people who played both ways, and I myself played both ways. I There were times when I played in a campaign, depending on the players, and we always declared and then rolled initiative because it kept things more dynamic. And if as long as everybody was in agreement, it worked, you know, because you, you just keep you keep it going. Um, but I also know plenty of tables and I, I played at plenty of tables that were basically like, ah, no, nah, that's BS. We're not going to do that. Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't stand there unless you were surprised. And but you know, we're talking about not being surprised at this point. Unless you were surprised, you're not going to stand there for a whole minute and yeah. let every let every activity happen around you. And then you're just going to say, "Oh, well, I was going to do this thing, but now I can't, so I'm not going to do anything this round." Like that doesn't, you know, right? So and and you know, for some people, um, randomized initiative every round has a lot of allure and I personally just cannot understand it. I I have never felt that at all, but it was um, in a uh, UA document. Um, I don't know. I want to say it was 2017. Mm-hmm. might've been early 2018. The alternative. Um, yeah. I remember that. I remember it, that. UA. It, it all sort of runs together for me, but I mean, <laughs> I had uh, my very good friend Tim Baker ask me about that in um, my Patreon mm-hmm. two days ago uh, <laughs> yeah. about what effects I thought it would have, and you know I told him, and you know it isn't for me, but I, I, I talked about what some of the knock-on effects would be, and um, as long as you're okay with those and you internalize those as the price of doing business, then. Do your thing. Just just follow your bliss. But um, until I'm in a game that uses that and the DM really uh, makes hay out of it in some way that I can't foresee, um, it's just lost on me uh, as to why you'd want to do that. Yeah, and the thing is that if you're doing um, determination first, right? if, if you're actually having to say what your action, it w- you're having to state emphatically, here's what I'm doing this turn before the initiative is rolled, then it makes sense that you roll every round because then it adds a huge randomness to the combat. And, you know, that means that the orc that's standing in front of me might get to attack me twice in a row, because if I went first in the in the first round, and then the orc went, and then in the second round, the orc goes first before I do, and I declared my action already, I don't get to move out of the way. The orc just gets to go again. So that has a huge effect on how the combat runs, good or bad. Like, the whole party has to be into that for it to make sense. I have not done it in 5th edition. Well, and in, in 4th and 5th edition, both uh, beginning of turn and end of turn uh, for creator of effect or target of effect are huge, huge, important timers. It, it's such a big thing. And so you're going to be skewing the effects just wildly. And 
you've really got to know that's what you're going to get. Uh, you're definitely going to have effects that are sometimes twice as good as they should be and sometimes do not do nothing at all. Um, and, and that's what I can't resolve myself against, you know? Well, see, um, that's why I say the whole party has to be into that because you, you have to let that, ha- you have to just say, okay, well, you know, we're just going to go with it and we're going to run, you know, if you end up going twice before this orc gets to go, then, you know, then it happens and you deal with whatever consequences and everybody has to be okay with it. Yep. Um, and, and so then we get into the actual initiative rules and these initiative rules are totally different than, than core. Um, because instead of, uh, being a, a pure numerical round timer, um, that is then modified by the casting speed of spells and the speed of your weapon and whatever else, and why dexterity doesn't factor factor into that, I'll never fully grasp. But that's okay. Um, you instead have uh, initiative phases, um, which sort of seems to point to um, what Shadow of the Demon Lord does, except that it is um, what five phases from very fast to very slow um, instead of fast turn, slow turn. Um, And then there are things that can kick you up a phase from whatever your default initiative phase is. Things can kick you down a phase, but initiative is still rolled by side Mm -hmm. and not by individual. Right. And frankly, that's just weird with the level of detail that's gone into action declaration. Well, and it's it's still a, it's still a D ten, right? Yeah, it's still a D ten, but by side. But then, then there's you know your initiative is based your base initiative is based on the size of the creature, right? Um, well, sort of. You're, that that base initiative is for when that creature is attacking with its natural weapons, because the weapon has to have a speed, and oh, that's the weapons true. are gonna, weapons are going to get speeds when you get to the. Um, the weapon chart that is unique to this book, uh, because just as skills and powers uh, reprinted the whole weapon chart, this book does too. Uh, right, and 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 combat actions affect it as well, right? Combat actions change your speed of whatever you're doing, not just weapon speed, right? But what and you're doing with it. Uh, I mean, that's yeah. that's a whole page from now, so I'll get back to you in ten minutes. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's be real about what, what I'm looking at here on page 18 and 19. Um, so, so right. You also have magical bonuses improving a weapons initiative, which is frankly nice to see. Um, those bonuses uh, did shave off weapon speed in in core second edition, and so when they shifted to phases, I'm glad they didn't completely ignore that. Though it's a lot of um, extraneous complication. It's definitely a uh, let's do some tax forms before combat. It really is. Uh, and it's definitely possible to drive a weapon speed down to zero. I presume it can't go negative. <laughs> so then you get critical events, which are actually a really neat idea. Um, it's very much 
sort of looking forward to the the luck decks that um, got released in fourth edition. And uh, if you squint and think about it for a bit, um, it's lair actions. <laughs> That's a good point. I hadn't re- hadn't attached this to lair actions. So so over in over in Dragon Talk, uh, your friend and mine, Dan Dillon, was talking to uh, Shelley Mazenoble about uh, how to be a good GM, and he pointed out that it, it, something you can do to really bring things to life is just on initiative count twenty, make something happen. Something happens even if you're not in a lair. Just something happens, and this is. Um, this is sort of doing the same thing, just potentially manipulating the number of combatants on the field and imposing conditions and damaging gear and so on. And, I mean, that's a good enough idea that um, pulling that into core in a future edition is probably a pretty strong move. Um, I think I could be really into that. Um it would accomplish some some things that I think are missing. I'll put it that way. But your list of things is armor trouble, battlefield damaged, um, and honestly, destroying the architecture is such a part of uh, cinematic uh, fantasy action that making it as hard to do as it is in D&D is a shame. Um, battlefield shifts, uh, the tide of battle carries all figures... 1d6 squares in a random direction. Um, nobody provokes opportunity attacks. That would be really hard to do in a coherent way, but uh, I like where their head is on that. And what do you do if there's a cavern wall four squares away, right? Who, who like, knows? That's, that's, that's what knows, could be cool about what could happen, right? So I agree with you. I like the way they're going with this. They The, the, the items that are on this list are really... This might be one of the best things in this book to be perfectly honest i uh, i hadn't looked at this page until 20 minutes ago well okay 20 minutes before we started the episode um but no it it has uh it has a lot to offer you need to really reconceive it but um i can really see uh sort of reformatting and updating this and just bringing it into fifth edition in that form, I think it's he's got got something to offer. Um, then we move into combat actions, which um, really, really resemble uh, third edition. Um, no move actions, half move actions, full move actions. Well, folks, that's just the the other side of the coin of uh, full actions, standard actions, so on, and. Uh, you get actions like overrun. Okay, sure. Um, lots and lots of um, examples that acknowledge, in a way, how unclear the text really is. But the example is another big sort of impenetrable block of text. And so, thanks. And kind of highlights to my mind why. Uh, there are almost no use case examples in the text of the player's handbook of the DMG uh, in fifth edition. It's a, it's a surprising thing if you are used to earlier edition manuals, but they really decided not to make that part of their style. 
Um, you know, I, I think that's a style choice, but I also think it's a technology availability choice. I think it was smart of them to make that choice because they also knew at the same time that they could tweet examples or say examples on podcasts or, you know, play a game on, you know, stream a game and show an example of it without having to explicitly say, this is an example of, you know, whatever, um, in a way that people feel like they're learning the game from seeing it, not not being told, here is an example you should memorize because this is a weird case that you have to know how to adjudicate. So I think it was, I think it was, I think you're right. It was a design choice or, or a formatting choice in terms of the book, but I think it was a really smart one. And I think that they, they might not have made that choice if technology wasn't so pervasive. I think they also just decided if we decide, if we think we need to include a paragraph of example, let's simplify it instead. I mean, it, they, they wound up with the most successful D and D that has ever been printed in in real consumer terms. So, uh, I mean, I guess that's was working out. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Are you sure it's the most successful that's ever been printed? I mean, the red Mincer red box was super duper successful. They'd have to release sales numbers to prove that. So yeah, I can st- stand firm in my unprovable assertion. <laughs> I'm okay with that. I don't. I don't have a dog in the race. It doesn't matter to me at all. Um, I do want to point out, though. I want. I want to step back a half a page with you. Sure. Because yeah, you yeah. moved. You moved over to the to the overrun, and right before the overrun, there's a little section that says combat movement on the battle map, and they have to actually say when a character moves across the battlefield, don't pick up the figure and drop it back down several spaces away. <laughs> Instead, trace the exact path the character is following from square to square on the map. The character never knows when there is a trap they may trigger or an invisible enemy threatening part of their planned move. Yep. And it's sort of like they're assuming this is this paragraph, for example, is one of the reasons why I say they're really really trying to sell the use of battle maps. They really are. Um, at the same time, I think of uh, like most of my friends, given the opportunity, will need to count out the squares and also will get a certain tactile joy out of moving their little mans square by square. Right. Yes. Like, uh-huh. I, I say that like <laughs> it's ridiculous, but... I mean, no, we have the mini for a reason, and we have these just insanely gorgeous uh, Reaper Bones minis that, okay, they're not painted, but you can't have everything. Um, uh, so, of course, you want to engage with them and feel like you're playing with them. Yeah. So Look, even with tokens, it doesn't even have to be a mini, painted or not. With tokens, <laughs> my my teenage players that I that I run a game for, they pick up the token, and then they count one, two, and they touch each square with the token as they go. <laughs> like, that's just – that is a tactile part of – I mean, of course, we're playing fifth edition, not second, but you get the idea. Yeah. I mean, it's just a tactile part of the game. It's like having dice. It's why I don't particularly like, uh, you know, online dice rollers or phone di- phone programs, phone apps that, that yep. have a dice. Like, I want to actually roll the dice. Thank you very much. Yeah, um, I, I feel yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Monopoly sort of coded us deep for tap <laughs> tap 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 tap. Yeah, that's true. 
Anyway, I, I got us off on a tangent again. I'm uh, shocked so, by this outcome, Sam. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> a, a lot of these big blocks don't have a lot of fascinating things to talk about. There's there's a lot of sort of fiddly plus ones and plus twos, um, which is a whole approach to bonuses that any fan of third edition is going to recognize any fan of Pathfinder is going to recognize it's, it's definitely in that mode of, well, we need to weigh all of these factors against each other and bigger or smaller numbers is what we have to work with. So I guess we work on about a five point scale. Okay, go. And, and that's not wrong. It's just not what I personally care about as much anymore. Um, I'm, I've become a, a pretty diehard fan of advantage and disadvantage, even with the corner cases where advantage and disadvantage um, creak a bit, but it's fine. Um, so a lot of the options here are, are pretty recognizable in uh, in most you know high combat games and in um, third edition just as much. Um, I mean, here they're listing all of the actions and describing them. Um, attack, cast a spell, take cover. Oh, oh, actually, that's covering someone. That's interesting. Um, that is uh, essentially readying an action to fire. It's not quite suppressive fire because you don't have the rate of fire to do that, but it is uh, wait for someone to break cover and then shoot them. Fire throw missiles. Why that's not attack, I couldn't sp- specifically tell you, but what can you do? Um, it has a lot to do with rate of fire, actually, because um, the rate of fire on some missiles verges, verges on going asymptotic as you go up levels if you're specialized. And then guard, which is uh, essentially um, ready in action to stab that guy if he comes over to me, uh, move, parry. There's, there's seldom in a game where parry was a good way to spend your action because <laughs> you're not making positive progress in the fight. You are right. hoping to avoid negative progress in the fight. That's not right. That's not good use your turn. Um, Parry strikes me as a um, a way to ha- to be able to cinematically have a duel between two, you know, noble people in at court. Uh, and they are they are so- soliloquying at each other as they as they parry each other's blows uh, because you have to give each of them enough time to finish their speech <laughs> before one of them uh, resolves the battle. Right, like that. That's always what it seems to me. Mechanically speaking, that doesn't work so well. Well, it's funny you should you should mention that because um, in chapter two we're going to get far more detailed rules for exactly that. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But I, I just mean in terms of the idea of parrying. Yeah, yeah. Because as you say, in regular combat, parrying is very rarely, rarely, rarely a good idea. Unless, you ha- unless you've built your character using a kit, not from this particular book, but from one of the other books, and it ends up being a major fainting action for you, and you get some sort of advantage from it. Which you mostly don't. Which you mostly don't, but there are some edge cases. So, you know, but yeah, anyway, so let's move on. So you have run and sprint, um, dash and more dash, um, but you take defense penalties for doing that. 
um, unarmed combat because it needed to, ways to be extra bad. Um, use magic item, cool, fine. Uh, withdraw. We call it disengage now, but it's the same idea. Yep. Um, Basic, basically the then, same thing. Yep. Yep. And then um, ending the combat round um, has fatigue. It has. Oh fatigue. no, thank you. Extremely <laughs> no, thank you. Oh. God, I forgot about this. Yeah, I was waiting for you to get there. <laughs> it's, it's so bad. Oh, it's so bad. Um, so the idea is that fighting tires you out and you burn through fatigue um, round over round and you have to stop and take a breather in the middle of the fight. It's What they're trying to do is create a dramatic moment of a a fighter you know kneeling leaning on his sword catching his breath or two duelists you know offering each other quarters they quite catch their quite breath, on Jin sitting down that, while the uh, rotating room blocks him and Darth Maul uh, yeah yeah sure. yeah except that except that we know that when Liam Neeson fights Tim Roth since we're doing a Liam Neeson thing when Liam Neeson t- fights Tim Roth no quarter will be uh, asked or given right like it's much more dramatic. If the fighters say ahead of time that they won't be uh, offering or giving quarter, well, sure. <laughs> so, so like most most players are not going to agree to that. They're not going to let the bad guy yeah. take a breather. <laughs> like no, and, and they're not going to be happy about skipping their turn to erase fatigue. They're just not. Well, and and let's and let's let's go back to that same thing that we've been talking about almost this whole chapter now. Here it is again, where their ideas of let's make a simulacrum, right? Let's let's make a simulation of combat. And hey, by the way, you know, fighting makes you really tired. Let's put some mechanics in here for this, and let people decide if they want to use it. Right. But then at the same time. They're going to tell you, but don't worry about the physics of it because it really, you know, we're we're in a fantasy world. Okay, great. But now you're going to throw fatigue into my combat. Yeah, I don't know, man. Like I've I've watched people who are in peak physical shape go absolutely all out in combat to the point that they didn't fatigue themselves, and it still took longer than this. I, like I've watched people give themselves heat stroke in the middle of a, a field. And it still, still takes longer than this. And these are supposed to be heroic characters, like maybe kind of better than my very good friend who was just, you know, in the armed forces uh, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it was. Right. Like, anyway, I don't know. It, it, it gets under my skin for just having so much to track. It would be kind of okay as a video game. Um, and it, it makes me think of some of the video games that do have uh, that sense of, uh, well, you can't necessarily do something every single turn. Sometimes you have to skip. A right. Turn. So you have like the point break where you've built up all of your stamina and you can do your really powerful move. And then after that, you can only fight with normal basic attacks for a while. Yeah. And then you can do your power move again. And then you can, yeah, it sort of has that feel. Sure. I'll, 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 I'll allow you that. Well, all right. And you've got games like hero clicks where, um, characters, you know, 
basically accumulate fatigue and they you can push them to have them act twice in a row or you can not to clear their their fatigue marker but that is very pointedly a game where you have multiple characters um I digress. So one one last note about this fatigue in the effects of fatigue section. uh, It uses the term exhaustion. So characters get exhausted if they get uh, enough fatigue. And they move and fight as if they were encumbered two categories more than normal. (laughs) So it's it's pulling in the encumbrance system. That's Which we already said was fantastic, Uh, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um... And you know, it, the very next section is going to be morale rules, and I don't know. I've never actually liked rolling for morale. I've always been much more into the DM should role play the monsters. That's what they're there to do. The DM should just feel confident that they know their monsters and should be okay with having the NPCs do things that aren't stab. Well, back in basic D and D in first edition, when you had so many retainers and hirelings and and minions running around, they had to make morale checks because at some point they're either going to be so confident in their abilities because they've been running with your group for a while that they're going to leave and try to become adventurers on their own and establish their own adventuring group, or they're going to be so disgruntled with your treatment of them or with their lack of funds or with the fact that they keep putting themselves in danger and they don't even get a full share of the, of the loot that they're going to, you know, be in a bad mood. You you know what I mean? So I, I get the idea for, of morale for, you know, hirelings and henchmen and all that. And and I use that when I play, you know, basic D and D or when I play, you know, labyrinth Lord or whatever, but in fifth edition, I don't use anything like that. I although I take that back. You know what? I do use a loyalty system for my the crew of my my the ship that that my party is on. Um, sure, because because they have a quality score, and that's directly related to their ability to actually get things done on the ocean. That's good. Um, I wrote a a loyalty track, uh, sort of comparable to the exhaustion track, except beneficial rather than penalizing. Um, because what I wanted to model was Mass Effect uh, and the whole sense of a loyalty quest. Like, uh, w- once you do uh, Garrus's loyalty quest, he's your guy. You're not losing his loyalty. That's not a thing. And I wanted to have a way for your, uh, your NPC companions to um, level up because you're awesome to them. Uh, in addition to maybe gaining some experience and getting a better stat block. But none of that, to get us back uh, back around, none of that actually has anything to do with morale. No. <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of a role, uh, uh, just one single singular role with a percentage, you know, whatever chance that it needs to be made. Um, I, I kind of agree with you about the creatures and monsters, you know, their, their morale. Although, you know, once again, if I go back to basic D&D, it was so dangerous to fight a large group of creatures that... Once you killed one or two of them, they had to start making morale rolls because they also want to preserve their own lives. And most of them, especially if they're beasts, they, they, they're running on instinct, and their instinct is going to be to preserve their own life. But but if you're a smart DM who knows the situation, you can actually role play that just as easy as you can roll for it, right? Right, I mean, and that's, that's my, essentially what you're that's saying. That's my fundamental yeah. assertion, yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, okay. 
I, t- I tend to like morale rules, which is wh- why I keep going back to this and, and challenging your assertion. But I don't actually disagree with you that much. We, you know, I, I, I say things like I like morale rules, but when I use them in my game, they're highly heavily modified to where they're not even anywhere near something like this. So Fair anyway. Uh, like, uh, I have my feelings about it, and it's okay if you don't share them. It's 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 all good. Uh, no, I mean, I it's, like, it's it's not that I don't want to disagree. I just I you know it's it's one of those things where I think my the way that I run games has evolved over time, yeah. and you know, it's evolved away from systems like a morale system. Although I love the idea of it still. Like I to me, it makes sense because I played so many years of basic D anD D where it does make sense and it does have its place. So anyway, right. Right. Um, our our audience would love it if we got in a knockdown drag out fight about something Brandis. We have to find something we disagree with. Well, I mean, it's literally the name of the podcast, Sam. <laughs> I know, <laughs> and they're disappointed. There has been no war so far. <laughs> so the next couple of pages are very kind of bog standard stuff. Um, it's, it's like I've been saying. There's a lot of. Um, plus one, plus two, minus one, minus two stuff sort of tucked into these paragraphs. And God will never forgive them for doing that. There's no there's no forgiveness for tucking all of your bonuses into just in line in a paragraph. You can't you can't be doing that. Um <laughs> they were trying to save space. And they failed. It's it's not okay. Um so then there's a thing for knockdown effects and knockdown roles. Um, and I appreciate the, the desire to like have big monsters be smashy, but that just needs to get coded into the monster somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Introducing it as a, a rule here is a good way to, have it get applied just really inconsistently and poorly. Right. Um, for, for no good reason, right? Oh, what's that yeah. you're fighting? Oh, it's a giant piranha. Oh, it has a knockdown attack. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And so there's there's a whole thing with a knockdown. Like every weapon has a knockdown die, but you only knock down uh, like, like small weapons. Of a, you're using your same damage die as the weapon itself. So you're trying to roll over the target creature's uh, knockdown number um and yeah it's it's gonna be very frustrating especially for small creatures the thing is it's a great idea with a not so great implementation it's it's definitely an interesting idea um with a, a not great implementation um i would love to see it as you know more big smashy monsters do big smashy things right um but fifth edition is very well suited to that, with its ability to design attacks that are customized to the creature. Uh, well, so for example, Pathfinder Two, which I have now been reading and, and playing a little bit of, uh, it has a it, which is sitting in front of me on the floor, uh, essentially um, unopened, not quite unopened, but untouched. Yeah, uh, well, I am. You're 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 busy. Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, it has a knockdown. There's a there's a characteristic that that some creatures can have. It's a it's an addendum to an attack. It's a knockdown. So if they hit with a certain attack, they can knock down their opponent. Um, 
And the thing is that what happens though is that because Pathfinder 2 has a very strict action economy, each each uh, individual gets three actions, and you can you can parse out however you want to spend those actions. And different actions in the game are worth different amounts of of, of moves of, of different. They cost different actions, right? Um, so if a if the creature wants to use the knockdown action, they have to use one of their actual actions. It, it's going to take up one of their slots, and so. And then they don't really call them slots, but you get my idea. So, so it actually has a balancing effect, right? Because uh, you're not just going to give the knockdown property to every creature that ha- is ever in the bestiary, and or bestiary, depending on where you're from. Uh, but you're also even the creatures that do have that capability might decide not to use it if they don't want to spend their action that way. So it doesn't become a compulsory thing. It's a cool thing the creature can do sometimes. But it's not even available to every creature, so it's kind of a more streamlined way to to do an effect like this, right? This is sort of, hey, let's apply this to everything. But that means that now we have to take into account everything's size and everything's speed and everything's like it's yeah, it's just not not as as uh, smooth as one would want something like that to be. So, and then and then there's a critical hit section. This book is full of critical hit sections. <laughs> Then there's this really interesting section about the gray areas. The gray areas. It gives us some example, and then it says, oh, the answers to these and other similar gray areas of figure placement and movement is, it doesn't really matter, as long as the solution is equitable. Well, I agree with that, but <laughs> you, did, you didn't need to give me three paragraphs of example before you tell me that. And then we get an extended example of combat, which... How they could write this and not draw the conclusion that it was burdensome and horrible, I can't. Well, this kills me because it's so many. It's um, four pages to do four rounds, and the fourth round is essentially completely missing, right? It gets one paragraph, and it's a summary, and oh, I I think that – Examples of play like this as a a way to teach people how to uh, – the fact that games are a dialogue are actually um, – they get a bad rap. I think they're underrated. Uh, but this book is trying to sell me on the opposite idea <laughs> because yeah. it is impenetrable and – it's not a it's not a good example because it sprinkles rules. It's it sounds like a great idea. Let's do an example and every step of the way we'll explain why that certain thing worked that way. Except it doesn't work well. I, I don't want to be unkind to the designers. This is very, very much where thinking was at the time. They were writing a book that was a reasonable product of its time. And they were responding to what they perceived in their audience in a time before uh, good, reliable audience surveys, right? And also a time before the internet. Now, I'm not saying I would. I'm not saying there was no communication. Well, what it was this '94, right? I'm not saying there was no communication, but it wasn't like it was today. You know, for sure. Like I imagine that they had pretty fair communication with the people, the kinds of players who cared enough to go to Gen Con, right? Um, certainly in 94, Gen Con was 
the be-all and end-all of TSR con attendance because it was the house that Gary built. And But yeah, um, that gets us through chapter one, kids. So I, I have a couple of final thoughts, or maybe just maybe it's just one final thought. <laughs> Hit me about chapter one. So you know, I, I still the first half of it to me is still really well written in terms of the flow of information. I can see the reason I say it is because I can see what they're trying to do and what they're trying to say and the points they're trying to make, and I think it's done well enough for the time to get the point across. And and I've done a lot of bagging on this chapter for this entire episode, but I do want to say that there is a group of players out there who absolutely love using this stuff. They they now granted the layout might not be the greatest because as you said, a lot of times they'll throw a little plus one, plus two bonus, you know, rules into the middle of a paragraph and they don't explain things very well in one hand and then on the other hand they're giving us, you know, half a page example of another particular rule that seemed like it was easier to understand. I mean, there's there's all sorts of little issues like that. But there are some people that loved this book. I'm sure. And so I feel like you know, it's not really. It it didn't didn't really speak to me, so I didn't use a great deal of it, other than the combat tables and back. But uh, you know, I, I'm not knocking it because I think it I think it has its place. And to address your premise uh, at the beginning or your thesis at the beginning, that it's kind of a third edition, a prelude to third edition. I think in that way. You know, I can't imagine that when they were designing third edition, they weren't sitting around and saying, "Okay, what are the best parts of the players' options books?" Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, with uh, the design credits on this going to uh, L. Richard Baker the Third and Skip Williams, <laughs> uh, yeah, and sort of going right down the line of uh, the staffers on this, I mean. These are names that are going to still matter mm-hmm. uh, as TSR becomes Watsy, right? Uh, so that's definitely it's definitely extant as uh, an influence. Um, but uh, speaking of Richard Baker, uh, in his preface, in his foreword, <laughs> I just want to read. <laughs> I want to read one paragraph of his foreword. <laughs> he says. Uh, <laughs> he says uh he says he saw an article in Dragon Dragon Magazine number 39 and it was called Good Hits and Bad Misses and it was basically critical hit and fumble tables and they ignored every piece of advice about responsible use of said tables and just used them in their game and he says our epic battles this is a quote now he says our epic battles turned into bloodbaths our group of adventurers left a trail of dismemberment and sucking chest wounds in our wake I distinctly recall one battle in which my character, a dwarven fighter named Hendel, had the unbelievable misfortune of losing one leg, losing an arm, and another leg at the ankle. He still had 30 hit points left, though, so he just kept on battling, swinging his axe with great war cries as he crawled along after his enemies. <laughs> wow. So, you know, that's the that's the sort of gusto with which they approached these rules. Um. And, you know, that also tells you – and, I mean, he says, you know, oh, we had to suspend our disbelief a great deal, you know, to make any of that make any sense whatsoever. But, um, you know, 
I mean, that also speaks to the whole idea of, well, suspend your physics rules and just deal with these rules and deal with our granular pluses and minuses and our rules and make it fun for your table and you'll probably have a blast. Yep. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, continuing this book. All right, sir. Anything you want to plug? If you want to come visit me at uh, tribality.com or brendastutter.com, I would love to talk to you there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at brendastutter, and I have a Patreon that is patreon.com slash brendastutter. So um, you can reach me on all those places, and um, I love talking about uh, D&D, gaming in general, um, all kinds of stuff. Awesome. And I am... Sam Dillon, and you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, and you can find me at various different places on the internet, including at the Tome Show, and then that's where we'll end the episode. Stay tuned tomorrow for the fifth day of Christmas and maybe one more chapter of Combat and Tactics. <laughs> <laughs> Look, mate, three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. Now that one doesn't even make sense, because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? Or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies? Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Show and use the coupon code TOMESHOW with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends.